embellish the story a little bit. It says, upon further review, they just realized that it was the goal line. So. <laughs> so that was worse than my joke. So uh. <laughs> let's, pr- let's pray for the Vikings. Um. God, we do love you today. We thank you that you are here. Thank you for your presence. Thank you, God, that we can laugh at the Vikings and we can, uh, do, uh, Lord, just come together as a family of God and uh, just thank you, God, again, for your presence, that you are here. Speak to us and open our hearts. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would once again illuminate the word of God to us and, uh, and, and show us Jesus in, in, a, in a stronger way that we would, Lord, more than just, again, just having a head knowledge, or just a cerebral knowledge of God, that we would, Lord, have transformational knowledge of you in our hearts. And Lord, that you would speak and that we would hear what you are saying in Jesus' name. Amen. So today we're going to continue in on this uh, this thing called the story. Um, to recap, I'm just going to kind of run a little recap here for you. If you've been tracking along, we are doing an overview of the entirety of the Bible, 31 kind of people and themes throughout Scripture. Um, we will see the story of redemption unfold as we look at the entirety of Scripture, Old Testament to New Testament. It's always been about God. It's His story. Um, but we started out at the very beginning. Um, the Bible is God's story, not our story, but He invites us into his story, which is an awesome thing. And, uh, and, and throughout these themes, we have been talking, and I, I kind of pointed at, pointed at this last week, that we are looking at the, the upper story and the lower story, paying attention to what God is doing and also what we're doing. Uh, Paul says this in Colossians, he said, I set my heart and my mind on things above, not just on earthly things. And that's having the mindset of saying, I don't want to just Pay attention to what's happening on the earth because sometimes we can get discouraged through the trials, the seasons of life. I mean, James, Peter, Paul, all of them talk about that in this life we're going to have struggles. We will have trials. We will have persecutions. But if we understand that there is an upper story, that God is working, that God is in control, that he is moving, that we pay attention to his upper story, we can set our hearts and saying, God, maybe I don't get it, but I, I believe that you are moving. It's the unseen versus the seen, as Paul calls it. So we see at the very beginning, God creates out of his glorious splendor and his creativity that he speaks the worlds into existence and he creates everything. And we understand that the, 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 his, the chief passion of his creation are people, Adam and Eve, and he creates them. And, he, and, and the revelation there is that he creates people for a relationship with himself, that mankind was the passion of his creation. But as he creates them and as it is uh, that, that he loves them, he gives them this gift and he gives us all this gift of free will. Not to force them to love him, not to force him to serve. They give, God gives them free will. And what do they do with this free will? They rebel against God and sin enters the world. We have wonderful things. Genesis 1 and 2 is God did this, God said this, and it was good. And then we all have that horrible part of the story, Genesis 3, that affects everyone. Sin comes in and we all, because of this, inherit this sin nature. And, and so they rebel against God, they disobey him, and they suffer the consequences of that sin as we all do. But God in his mercy, although they sin, they rebel, 
God makes a way for them. He does banish them from his presence. He banishes them from the Garden of Eden um, and because he himself, he cannot have any part with sinfulness, but he still loves them and he makes a way for them. So we see him even um, in, 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 the, in the garden where they begin to try, they realize that they're shameful that, and, and they try to cover their nakedness with leaves and then God does the first sacrifice. He covers them with skins to point us to the redemption of Jesus that they needed more permanent covering for their sin and it pointed us to Christ. And so we have them going out of the garden. They began to reproduce and there are many people on the earth. And as more and more people come, wickedness becomes more and more rampant. And people are turning away from God, and God says, I'm going to destroy the earth with the flood. Yet what? He loves people, and he finds Noah to be a righteous man. And because he loves people, because he still has a plan for people, he saves Noah and his family. Again, there are repercussions, there were consequences, and there are a lot of people that perished in that day. But God still loved people. He still wanted people for himself. We then looked at how God began to build a nation after Noah, um, Noah's time was done. And we, we looked at the, God beginning to build a nation through Abraham and Sarah. He promised Abraham that he would give him descendants. And um, he gave Abraham and, Isaac, uh, Abraham and Sarah Isaac as a son. Isaac and Rebekah then grew, they, uh, Isaac grew up, married Rebekah. They had Jacob and Esau. Again, I'm not visiting all this. I'm giving to give you a kind of a jet tour here, but... They have Jacob and Esau, and, and, and Jacob, through two wives, two maidservants, and 12 son, had 12 sons that would become the 12 tribes of Israel, as we look at Scripture. Last week, we looked at one of those sons, Joseph, the favored son, how his dad loved him probably greater than all the other sons, but in spite of them rejecting him, selling him into slavery, God used his life through the hard times. God spoke to him, gave him dreams, but there was a season of hard times and testing that he had to go through ultimately to save the lives of the Israelites. And so again, why do I share all that? In all these stories, you see God loving, redeeming, and using broken, normal people for his glory. And so it should give all of us hope and encouragement that we don't just look at people from Scripture and say, well, they were way up here somewhere. We are we are just like them, and we're broken, and we make mistakes, and we, you know, we, we desperately need God every day, as they did. And so you see God using normal, broken people for his glory. You see in these stories the great story of redemption unfold over and over. We see the gospel unfold because that is at the very heart of God's story, loving, redeeming, and saving people. And so it's his story, and he's invited us into that story. So today it leads us into the story of Moses. And I don't know if Doug knew that or not, but uh, when he gave that word, that's pretty incredible. He did not know that. Today is Moses and the deliverance of God's people. That's really cool when God does those kind of things. So we move from Genesis to Exodus, and the focus moves from a few families of Israel to a whole nation. The people have been brought to Egypt because of the food plan that was put in place by Joseph. As we looked at Joseph, you know, there was a great famine. There was seven years of plenty, seven years of famine. Pharaoh puts him in charge of this food distribution program. And we see that, you know, he reunites with his brothers and his father. And they move to Goshen, which is a part of Egypt. And they are going to take up residence there. And so Israel comes to Egypt with about 70 family members. 
And then they have favor with Pharaoh. Joseph is second in command, and things are going pretty well for the nation of Israel. But about 400 years pass, so now there's approximately, as you fast forward, you know, Joseph and all of his brothers die. They're in Egypt for 400 years, and now we have approximately 2 million Israelites that are there. And God used all of that, that food distribution program, to save the lives of many. And that's what Joseph said. Joseph looked at all the hard seasons. He looked at all the the difficulties, and he looked at his brothers, and he said, what you meant for evil, God did for good. And so he kind of had his heart set on what Paul said, all things work together for good to those that love God and are called according to his purposes in Christ Jesus. And so we have about 2 million people. And so they are there with the protection that had come, that they had. They had become a mighty nation. And so a new Pharaoh arises, and it says this in the Bible. He knows nothing of Joseph. So many, many years have gone through, and he is now becoming afraid of how large and how big and how powerful the Israelites are and are among them. So he puts them into slavery. And again, we see God's familiar theme arise again, that things seem to be going good, and then hard times come. It's Joseph. He has dreams from God, and then he's sold into slavery. And so this is a common theme. You would see it in the New Testament. Paul is serving God, and then he and his companions, they go through many trials and tribulations, but God is working. And so they go into slavery. Things were going good. They were at peace. Now it's hard, but the hard times aren't wasted. God's on the move. And so their slavery was very, very difficult as you read Scripture. In the midst of slavery even, Pharaoh decrees that all baby boys, two and under, should be killed. They take them when they're born, had the midwives say, throw them in the Nile River. Kill them. He's in fear of how great this nation is becoming, and he's intimidated by it, so he wants to kill the boys, the heirs. We then have Moses' story kind of emerge from this. Moses' mother, she is afraid because of this decree, so she hides him. And Doug gave that word this morning. She puts him into a basket, and she floats him down the Nile River and, uh, and puts him you know, you know, into this little basket to try to save him. And we see God's hand at move, because interestingly enough, here's Pharaoh's daughter. At that time, she's out with some of her maids. She's bathing. She finds him in the river. And she decides to adopt this little boy. She realizes he's a Hebrew. She has compassion on him. So she pulls him from the river. And this is how, just how awesome that God is in the midst of this. Here's Moses' sister that makes sure the basket is, is going into a place of safety. Pharaoh's daughter calls her over. This is Miriam. And she says, find one of the Hebrew ladies to nurse him until he's old enough where I can adopt him. Oh, she goes, I got an idea. I got just the lady. And it's Moses' own mother that gets to nurse him until he is adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. And so God was in control even when things were very difficult. Now understand, this was a very hard, hard time. If you can imagine, all these babies being killed. And um, interestingly enough, as we look at this redemption, we see the story of redemption. Years later, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, what was going on at that time? You remember the story, Herod wanted all the baby boys because he had heard that there was going to be a king that rise up and he wanted all those baby boys killed. And so God saves Jesus by how? He tells Mary and Joseph to flee to where? 
Egypt. Isn't that interesting? Moses is in Egypt, and there is the story of redemption unfolding. God speaks to Joseph through an angel and says, Take Mary and the baby and go to Egypt, where I will save you. And so we see this story, and if you're looking in, you know, in, in, in the fine print there, you will find the story of redemption all through this. And so Jesus, who would become ultimately the greatest Savior of all time. So God is raising up Moses at just the right time to lead the people to deliverance by putting him into the Egyptian royal family. Again, the upper and the lower story. It's hard down here, but God's working. And that's where we can be encouraged. Be encouraged in your own life that maybe things are difficult at times and maybe you go through seasons of difficulty that you keep your eyes on Jesus and say, Lord, I will follow you. I'm going to continue. I don't get it. I don't see it, but I'm going to keep on pressing in and walking with you. So Moses grows up and he it says this, is that he sees the difference between himself and the Egyptians. He understands that he's different. In Hebrews 11, it says this, by faith, Moses did not associate with the Egyptians, but rather the Hebrew slaves. So he sees the persecution of his people in slavery and as we can all do it, one day he sees this Egyptian guard beating a Hebrew slave, so he decides, you know, maybe he's thinking that I'm, I'm, I'm set up in this place for such a time as this. I'll kind of take matters into my own hands. So what does he do? He kills this guard. And so somewhat he tries to become this deliverer and defender by his own strength. And so I think he blew it. But God still had a plan. So he kills this, this guard. He buries him. And then the next day he's out there and there's two Hebrew slaves fighting. And he's like, why are you guys fighting? And then one of them says, what are you going to do? You're going to kill us like you killed the, the, the guard? And, and so he gets into fear saying, oh, you know, I, I, they know what I've done. And so he flees and he flees Egypt and he runs. And we see that God is using that. As well, he ends up in Midian. He's in the wilderness for 40 years. It's interesting that the number 40 has a lot of biblical significance. You know, Jesus, before he began his earthly ministry, he was in the desert for 40 days and 40 nights. And so I look at this time in Moses. Moses flees. He goes to Midian. This is somewhat of a training time for him, this wilderness time. But again, the wilderness time, the silent time is not wasted. God is preparing him. But what do we find him doing? We find him that, 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 that the time is not wasted. He begins to just be content with where God has him. He, he gets married. Um, you know, he, he, he finds this, this group of ladies and he saves them and he defends them from uh, you know, their shepherdesses. And, is that a word? Shepherdesses. And, and he saves them. And, and then the father says, well, bring him here. Gives him the oldest daughter. So he gets married to her. He has children. And so even in this 40 years, God is not, it's not wasted time. So he loves God. He's content. He's not, at this point, I think he's probably forgotten about position and God finds him. If you're in the wilderness, keep your eyes on the Lord. He hasn't forgotten you. And so one day he's tending his flocks. Most of us know this story. And God speaks to him from a burning bush that isn't being consumed. And I always love the passage of Scripture. When it says that you know, he's interested and he walks over to it and he's checking it out. I, I think I might be running the other way. Um, but he's like, this is an interesting thing. 
And so God speaks to him from the burning bush. And God, who has seen the suffering of his people in Egypt, conveys to Moses, and he is calling him to lead the people out of bondage. Moses, you've been chosen to lead my people out of bondage. And so maybe all these things, these thoughts, maybe that was why I was in that family. And, but then Moses starts making excuses. Why me? Uh, why I don't speak well? And he starts going kind of through the, the you know, just the, the whole thing of, well, you know, God, I think that you should choose somebody else. I think that I, you know, I'm pretty happy right out here. Because sometimes our contentment can get us into where we're too comfortable. And maybe that was where he was at that time. But God was not impressed. If you read the scripture, God was not impressed with Moses' excuses. And can I say today that God's not impressed with your excuses? Of why he can't maybe use your life, you know, well, I'm going through this or that, and God could never use me, or God could never. Don't say that. Just like, remember what Jeremiah said, I, I'm just but a youth, and, 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 you know, you couldn't use me. And God basically tells Jeremiah, don't say that. So God was not in, uh, impressed with his excuses, and he's not impressed with ours. So what he's telling Moses, and, and he gets really angry with Moses if you see this exchange, He's saying, Moses, you've got me. That's good for you. If you've got me, that's all you need. And that's what he's saying is you don't need excuses when you've got God, when you are serving God. And, you know, and, and, and we are told in Scripture that greater is he that is within us than he that is in the world. That God can use us because we've got him. So Moses, this common shepherd, is chosen by God to, the, to go to the most powerful man on the earth at the time. Egypt was the world power of the day. And the Pharaoh was the most powerful man on the planet, humanly speaking. And he says, Moses, I want you to go. Go tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And so God reveals three things about himself in this story that we're going to look at today. These three big ideas that we're going to kind of look at over the next few minutes. The revelation of three things about God in this story. Number one is he reveals his name, who he is, his identity to Moses. Up to this point, God has been called different names, different titles, El Shaddai, um, Adonai, some of those names that you, if you've ever done name studies of God. What he tells Moses is something very different. But he's revealing his identity. He's saying, this is who I am. And then through this, you will see a lot of other things unfold. Remember at the burning bush, if you've tracked along with the story, Moses says this, okay, you're asking me to go to Pharaoh. You're saying, let my people go. Who should I say is sending me? You want me to go tell the people, all right, I'm your deliverer. And I'm going to show up on the, who should I say is sending me? What does God say? He says, I am that I am. Tell them that I am has sent you. And so at this point, again, God had been known by different names, but what he was saying here, and it's the word we get, Yahweh, if you've ever heard that before, Yahweh. Interestingly enough, Yahweh has a couple of different definitions to it. Number one is the, the undefinable one, and probably a better translation is a, the self-existent one, 
self-existent one. Who was he saying? What was he telling Moses in the midst of this? What identity? What is the power of revealing his name? He's saying this, and this is where we can track back and say we serve. Who, who, who is this God that we serve? Who is this God that we worship? That you come in here on a Sunday morning or throughout your week and you are worshiping. Who is this God? What is his identity? And when we look at this story, what he is saying is he's saying, I am the self-existent one. I am the only God. I am self-sufficient. The one and only, the alpha and the omega we get later on, the beginning and the ending, the first and the last. There is no other God but me. That's what he's saying. I am the great I am. I am all-knowing. I am all-powerful. I am ever-present. I'm the one and only God. You don't need any other gods. Everything else is a fake and it's false. There is no other God but me. This is who we serve. And we see Moses where he came and, and God says in a holy and reverential moment there, he says, take off your sandals because the ground you're standing is holy ground. You're in the presence of God Almighty, this self-existent one. Now let me hit the pause button here real quick before we jump more into the story. God is very loving and through Christ we have mercy and we have grace and we can approach him through Jesus and through the blood of Christ. But please don't let that make you lose the reverential holiness of God. The awesomeness, the, the bigness, the hugeness of who he is. I think sometimes we take him for granted. I think sometimes we come in here and we're just kind of lackadaisical about this is who has invited us into a relationship with himself. Let us never lose the awe and the reverence of who God is. He is mighty. And Moses in this takes off his sandals and he says, okay, I understand who is before me now. And he says this, go to my people and go to Pharaoh and tell them I am is here. That ever-present one. Not the I was, not the I will be. Now he is the, the God of the past and he is the God of the future, but he is ever-present. And it's interesting because Egypt... They were the world power at the time. Pharaoh is the most powerful man in the world. And they had many gods that they worshipped. And they revered. And so it's interesting that God is going to them at the time, the world power of the time, and he is about to reveal to them even, and through this demonstration, who the real one true God is. And so then we can jump into this question and say, well, what about Jesus? Was he God? Because there's this, you know, you know he, he, was, he came to the earth and was he man and God? How did that work? Was Jesus God? Well, let me read to you something that Jesus said of himself. And it's going to be up on the screen here. We see Jesus use the same terminology of himself in John chapter 8. Context here is that he's having this exchange with the Pharisees, the religious people of the day. They are well studied. They understand the story of Moses. They have all memorized the entire Torah, the law. 
They know all about Yahweh. And they have Jesus standing there missing him because he didn't come like they thought he should come. And so there's this exchange, kind of almost a debate of who he is. And it says this in 54, you can read up, up on your screen, follow along. Jesus replied, if I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My father whom you claim as your God is the one who glorifies me. Okay, let's stop right there. That language that he's using there is blasphemous from a human point of view. He's saying, God the Father glorifies me. I don't glorify myself. He's glorifying me. And so they are understanding, and you can almost sense their, their anger is rising. In 55, verse 55, though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you. Gentle, lowly Jesus confronting religious people. But I do know him and obey his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. And then they're, now they're kind of doing the math. They're saying, wait a second. You're standing here. And they said, you're not yet 50 years old. And you've seen Abraham. And he said, verily, truly, I say to you, Jesus answered. Listen to this. Before Abraham was born, I am. And then verse 59 is very important if we're understanding, was Jesus God? At this time, they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. Don't miss the significance of that. Why were they going to stone him? They understood very clearly what he was saying. They knew what he was claiming. It wasn't like that they needed any other debate. They didn't think that maybe he was just a madman. They, they understood this this, what you are saying, deserves the death penalty. You are blaspheming because you are claiming to be God. And Jesus was saying, you know the Yahweh back then, the self-existent one back then, the first and the last, the, the beginning and the end, the guy that spoke to Moses in the burning bush, the I am, the Yahweh, that's me. That's what he was saying. Be very clear, Jesus was fully God and the only God. And so he reveals in this story, God is revealing, number one, his name, his identity. Don't lose who he is. Number two is he reveals his power. We see God's power on display in this story. If you're tracking along, a lot of, again, we grew up with these stories. We heard about them in Sunday school. But he reveals his power and he displays his power through the ten plagues. After Pharaoh refuses to let the people go. Moses goes before Pharaoh and he, you know, he says, let my people go. God says, let my people go. And he hardens his heart and he says, no way, I'm not going to do that. And basically saying, who's this God? Who, do you, who does your God think he is? And God's using all this saying, I'm going to display my power. So he refuses and rejects Moses' demands, and so we see these ten plagues. Interesting side note, maybe some of you are aware of this, maybe not, but each of the plagues were directly related to one of the gods of Egypt. It wasn't just this random thing, like all of a sudden frogs are just everywhere. Why frogs? And the people understood why there were frogs. Frogs were a sign of fertility. There was a fertility god that was, they, they worshipped. It was a big golden frog. I don't know why you'd worship something like that, but they did, and they felt like it was fertility, and so and then the land is overrun with them. God says, I will release frogs, and frogs kind of took over at one point. They also were to, known to 
worship the God of the sun, Ra. Remember what one of the plagues were, complete darkness. God was saying, I can remove your little sun God in a second. I'm way more powerful than he is. This fake God that you, that you serve. They would worship the Nile. They felt like the Nile, then the power of the river. And we understand that there's power in water, but they, would, they were revering it as some sort of God. What did God do? He touched it and turned it into blood. And then everything was stinking and decaying and dead. And he was saying, your Nile River God is dead. He does not produce life. He produces death. And on and on we go. Interesting also is that when, remember when Moses first came to Pharaoh, he throws down the staff, it becomes a snake. What do the magicians do? They throw down their staff. They're able to do these little false signs and wonders. They had an element of power. The enemy has a little bit of power. Even we're warned in the end times there will be false signs and wonders that will arise to deceive people. Don't be impressed just by some tricks that can be done. What they could not do, and I think this is awesome, is the plague where Moses struck the ground and remember dust came up and it turned into gnats. They could not recreate that one. Why? Because it was a creative miracle. They could only fake other things. And I always think that it's kind of ridiculous and kind of stupid to be honest with you, that Moses strikes the water with blood, you know, turns the water into blood, and then they do it. Well, we can destroy our own land too. I I, I don't understand. I just never got that. You do frogs? We can do frogs, and we'll just have more frogs. You know, it's like, I, I think that somebody was giggling at that point, saying, wow, this is pretty interesting. And so he's revealing his power And we see over, you know, frogs, gnats, flies, animals die. The Nile River becomes blood, boils and soars upon people. Deadly hail, locusts, darkness. And then that last plague would be the death of the very every firstborn. And what God was doing is revealing that their gods could not save them or stand against the one and true God. God was revealing to the most powerful nation on the earth and the most powerful man on the earth that he was the one and true God. Your gods cannot save you. These things that you put your hope, these things that you put your trust in will not save you. And he was bringing the revelation, again, because he loves people, but he was bringing the revelation down to its knees, their gods to their knees and saying, these things that you hope in, these things that you trust in, these things that you make God of your life will not save you. Only God can save you. And let me say this, only God can save us. We may not worship gods that are shaped like frogs or the sun. But let me ask you today, what are your gods? What are the things that you put your hope and your trust in? What are the things that you escape to when things are getting tough? It's so easy to forget about God when we're going through hard things because we all can tend to gravitate towards idolatry. Let's not just look at them. Let's not just look at the Old Testament and go, man, there's a bunch of idol worshipers. We have our own idols. And it's the things that take God's place in our lives. They will not save you. They will only bring you a false sense of comfort for a time, 
but then it will leave you empty over and over because God's trying to get all of our attention that we will cast those things off and that he would be the one and only God in our lives. He also reveals his power later on when, they, when the children of Israel leave and he splits the Red Sea open. And what do we see in this miracle is, you know, they felt like that we are trapped. Remember, they had the Red Sea in front of them and they, they, they had the Egyptians come in after them. They were literally in a corner. What does God do? He splits this Red Sea, basically saying, God can make a way when there seems to be no way. And he can still do it in our lives. He is a miracle-working God. Don't forget that. When ways seem impossible, God can do the impossible. So the third thing that he reveals, so number one, he's revealing his name, his identity. Number two, he reveals his power. Number three, he reveals his plan of redemption once again. So you go way back, thousands of years before Christ, and we see God's story, his plan of redemption. How do we see it? We see the gospel come alive through the 10th plague. We see the gospel come alive through the 10th plague. The 10th plague was more than just the firstborn of all Egypt dying. It was, it, was, it was a bigger revelation. It was a bigger story unfolding here. The 10th plague also required that the Hebrews make sacrifices in order to be protected from the plague. In all the other plagues, if you read about it, God makes a distinction between the Egyptians and, 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 the, and the Israelites and the Hebrews. And he does that on his own. You know, where they were overrun with frogs, the Hebrews were not. Where they were overrun with flies, the Hebrews were not. Where they had complete darkness, the Hebrews did not. God was making a distinction saying, if you follow me, you have my blessings. If you don't, you won't. And he made the distinction. This one... The 10th plague, they had a responsibility in it. They had a requirement. Because now he approaches this 10th plague. And he says, to make the distinction, I'm going to require something of you. And so they had to sacrifice a lamb. And they had to apply the blood of that lamb on their doorposts over the top of the door and on the sides. And so, again, we see, we're going to see this story unfold, but there was a requirement of them. God would send the angel of death throughout. That's what he said. I'm going to kill all the firstborn. And then you have to sacrifice a lamb, put it on your doorpost of the top. I'm going to send an angel of death that's going to come throughout the land, and he will kill all the firstborn of each household. Wherever I see the lamb's blood over the door, the angel would pass over that place and not bring judgment. That's where we get the word Passover. This is the Jews still celebrate the Passover. They celebrate that time where God delivered them out of Egypt. And this 10th plague specifically where God passed over where he would see the blood. And it was to remind them of God's salvation of judgment and death. So look at, let's look at the instructions specifically from Exodus chapter 12. I think it's up there. These are the instructions. Again, you will see this pointing to the story, our story of redemption. He says this, the animals you choose must be a year old male, what, without defect. That's very important. Hebrews says this about Jesus. 
that he was tempted, he understood, he was, we have a high priest that understands us. He was tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin. He had no defect of sin upon himself. And they had to choose this lamb. Why did they have to choose a lamb with no defect? Because it was precious. It was, it was costly. It was valuable. It wasn't the leftovers. It was the first. It was something that was going to be, this is going to cost us greatly. Jesus was a costly price without defect. Verse 6, take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. And that sounds gruesome and it sounds horrific. But there was something being revealed here that because of sin, something had to die. Then they are to take some of the blood and they are to put it on the sides and tops of the doors and the frames of the house where they eat the lambs. That same night they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. And we could get into, I'm not going to, today, I'm not going to get into all the symbolisms here that unfold in the Passover, but there's so many powerful, if you were here for the Jews for Jesus presentation, you saw that. And each thing means something and it points us to Christ. I'm not going to go through all that. But at the time, they didn't really get what was going on. This was the first time they'd been asked to do this. This seemed probably somewhat weird to them. But they obeyed God. So in this story, we see even the greater truth unveil. It was, it was about God saving the Hebrews from bondage, but it was pointing us to the greater reality that would come. It was pointing us to the gospel story of Jesus, the story of redemption. Jesus, many years later, on the night that he was betrayed, revealed the greater truth of what the Passover was all about. Do you think it was by accident that the night before he, you know, the night he was going to be betrayed, he's sitting with his disciples celebrating what? The Passover. Not by accident. Nothing that God does is accidental. He shares the Passover meal with his disciples. And the Jews had been doing this year after year. But he does something extraordinary in the midst of the Passover meal. Because they would take the bread and they would break it. And they would, they would remember things. And they, the cup of redemption. And so then he takes the bread and he breaks it. And he looks at his disciples in this moment. And he says, this is my body. You understand the power of that? It's when we take communion, you understand the power of what Jesus is saying? He said, I'm the Passover lamb. Broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. As often as you eat it, remember what is about to happen. He hadn't been crucified yet, but remember this day. He took the, 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 the cup of wine. He said, this is the blood of the new covenant between us. The new covenant between God and his people. I am redemption. I am the one that everyone was pointing to. I am who the Old Testament, what they were looking for, the promise. I am that. I am the Passover lamb, and I'm going to shed my blood for the remission of sins. And he was saying, I am the sacrifice. I'm the once and for all sacrifice. And the Passover has always been pointing to me. We can go to the next slide and look at what Jesus said. Remember when Jesus was about to start his ministry, John the Baptist says something about him. And so we can go to the next one. I think it's at the bottom. In this great prophetic 
declaration that John makes because it says he was the forerunner of Jesus. Jesus is coming up. He's about to baptize him. What does John say? It was not by accident. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The Lamb of God. Why did he use that terminology? Because as they did the Passover, that original Passover, when they had to, they had to slaughter this lamb and put its blood over their doorway and on the sides, he was saying, behold, this is the Lamb of God. And the story of Moses and the deliverance of the Hebrews points us to Jesus. Points us to Jesus. It points us to Jesus being our redemption of sin, that we cannot save ourselves. The children of Israel could not save themselves. They needed God's intervention. We need God's intervention. We are all under the bondage of sin. We all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. No one in here has an exception to that rule. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But it also says this, that God laid on him, Jesus, the sins of us all. And he allowed him to be broken. And Jesus gave up his life. And just as the children of Israel were in bondage, we are in bondage with no way out. Because of sin, something had to die. He says this in Hebrews, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So either you have to pay for your sins or someone else has to, but somebody's going to pay. Hebrews 6 says this, the wages of sin, that's the payment. That's what you deserve. You know, when you work and you get your paycheck, that's your wages. That's what you've earned. And Paul makes this bold declaration, the wages of sin, your payment, your earning for your life is death. The wages of sin is death. We all deserve it. There's nobody that's good. We're all, we're, we, can't, we can't good behavior ourselves into heaven. We've all sinned. We've fallen short of God's glory. We're under this bondage and some, something had to die. So either you're going to pay for it or somebody's going to have to pay for it. And Jesus steps on the scene and he says, I will pay for it. I will pay for it for you. That's the good news, that we don't have to pay for it. The payment of sin is death, and he steps in to our world, and he takes sin upon himself, and he dies this horrific death on the cross for us. And our sin puts us in bondage, and it separates us from God, and there was only one way to eliminate that separation, and that is through Jesus Christ. Did you catch that? There's only one way to eliminate that separation from God, and that is through Jesus Christ. There is no other way. Remember his declaration, just like God, I am the one, the true, the only God. There is no other God. All other gods are a fake. I am the only one. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And so we have to receive the sacrifice of Jesus under our, of our sins and apply his blood over our lives. Remember what they did in the Passover? If you look with me, and they would put it up here. And they would put it here. What does that look like to you? Does it look like a cross? When the blood would drip from the doorpost and then they would put the blood on the sides. Doesn't that look in the shape of a cross? It was always pointing to Jesus Christ. They had no idea even on that day what they were doing, but they were doing the sign of the cross on their doorpost to apply the blood 
And he said, only those people that have applied the blood, and this was the command of God, only those who have the blood over the doorpost, when the angel of death, when judgment comes, he will pass over those. This points us to redemption. When we receive the sacrifice of Christ, when we put our trust in him, and we understand that we are sinners, that we deserve death, and that he is the only way out, and we say, Jesus, I receive your sacrifice in a symbolic way. I applied your blood to my heart and my life. When judgment comes, we are passed over, and we are children of God. People that reject him and reject him, reject him, what he's saying is somebody's going to pay for your sin. Somebody's going to do it. So if you reject the gift of God through Christ Jesus, you will endure your own judgment. How does a loving God judge people? He doesn't. He just lets them have what they have chosen when they reject him. And so it's this realization that we come to that we're a sinner, that we deserve death. We can't save ourselves. We receive the sacrifice of Jesus, put our trust in him, surrender our life to him and again. And this is not this kind of servant master. He then receives us into, with a beautiful thing, is into relationship. That's the beauty of God. He doesn't say, well, now you'll just be my servant. Remember what Jesus said to his disciples? I no longer call you servants. You're now my friends relationship. And so he made this way out of sin and out of bondage. He loves us. He desires to have relationship with us. And once again, through this story of Moses, the deliverance of God's people, this imperfect man who had mistakes, and if you read the rest of his story, you see lots of flaws. You see disobedience. You see him making some huge mistakes. One mistake in, in specifically was going to keep him out of going into the promised land. Yet he served God and he worshiped him faithfully. And God said, this man, I love this man. And I use him for my glory. And through all this story, we see the plan of redemption unfold. We see the gospel and we see the great lengths in which God will go to win us back to himself. Let's stand and pray. I encourage you to this week and as you know, as you've heard these things, um, as you worship God, as you talk to God, and that's what prayer is, is that you're having a relationship with God. And I encourage you to even think about these three revelations about who God is and that you would talk to him and say, God, who are you? Teach me your identity. Reveal more and more about yourself to me. Holy Spirit, teach me about who you are. You will find the one and true, the only God, the self-sufficient one. You will find Yahweh and you will find him close and, and he will reveal his identity and more about himself. You know, and Ask him to reveal his power in and through you. He is a powerful God. He's a miracle-working God. And also that he would reveal to you redemption, that we would never, ever forget that, and that we would come to him in holy reverence and awe. And as you come in here and worship, as you worship God to know who he is, let's not take him for granted. So let's pray. 
Lord, we love you today. We thank you for who you are. Lord, you are so amazing and so good. And Lord, we just come in a very humble way, God, saying that we are broken and we are in need of you. Lord, we are sinners that have fallen short of the glory of God and our, our just and right wage is death. And so, Lord, we just want to say thank you. We are humbled. We are so, it's so amazing that you would pay that penalty for us. God, as we worship you, as we come in here each Sunday morning, as we worship you day to day, that, Lord, we would never forget that truth. We would never forget the cross and look at redemption and just, Lord, a lot of times we can do that. We've heard it so much and that we can almost look at it and yawn and say, yeah, that's the cross. That's, the, that's redemption. Lord, God, forgive us for how we've taken that for granted. May we come before you with holy reverence and awe because you're worthy of our hearts. And Lord, I pray that today you would even confront the idols in our own hearts. And I ask you today, what is your trust in? What are you putting your trust in? What are you putting your hope in? Is it temporal things? Is it just things that temporarily satisfy? Is it the leftovers? If so, let God lovingly confront you today because his conviction is good. And then you just make that stuff right with him. God, forgive me. Forgive me for the thing that has become an idol. Forgive me where I found comfort. Forgive me, God. And Lord, we love you today. I thank you for your people. I thank you that you love us so deeply. Lord, may we live every day looking to your story of redemption, applying your